Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Michael Ryback. I am a professor of pharmacy and medicine at the Eugene Applebaum College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences at Wayne State University. I also serve as a scientific editor for infectious diseases for pharmacotherapy. Today we are talking with Dr. Sarah Jurgison and Dr. Chris T. Dr. Jurgison is an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Chris T. is a 2020 graduate of the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto. Dr. Jurgison and T. and their colleagues have a manuscript that will be published in the August 2020 issue of Pharmacotherapy titled Baricitinib, a Review of Pharmacology, Safety, and Emerging Clinical Experience in COVID-19. Additional co-authors are Lisa Berry and Linda Dresser. Sarah and Chris, thank you for this timely review and welcome to the podcast. Sarah, I'm going to begin with you. Obviously, we have come a long way in our understanding of COVID-19 since the beginning of this pandemic. We now know that one of the devastating events defining this disease is the acute hyperinflammatory response and the so-called cytokine storm that often leads to severe complications, including death. Can you describe for us what baricinitinib is and how it might work to improve patient outcomes that have COVID-19? Yeah, so first, thanks for this opportunity. It was quite an effort for me to really wrap my head around how this drug works, so I'm happy to hopefully help others understand too. Um, So baricitinib is an oral genus-associated kinase or JAK inhibitor that's primarily used for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune diseases. The JAK-STAT pathway mediates the signaling of many of the cytokines and chemokines implicated in the hyperinflammatory response that we see with severe COVID-19. And so it's been hypothesized that interrupting these pathways with drugs like baricitinib could dampen down that over-exuberant immune response and protect against the related organ damage. A similar rationale underpins the use of tolicitinib, which targets interleukin-6, a key hyperinflammatory cytokine. Um, Baricitinib's immunosuppressive effects are more broad-ranging, though. So another unique property um, is that it may also have antiviral activity against SARS-CoV-2. So when we think of the way most antiviral compounds exert their activity, we think about targeting essential components, essential viral components like viral proteases and polymerases. Um, This approach has been tremendously successful for the treatment of chronic viral illnesses like HIV and Hep C, but we haven't had as much success for acute viral illnesses. So an alternative approach that some people think might be more successful in this setting is to use drugs that target host machinery that viruses hijack for cell entry or for replication. Baricitinib binds to and potentially inhibits some of the enzymes involved in endocytosis of SARS-CoV-2, so we think it could block viral cell entry. It may also have indirect antiviral activity by interfering with interferon signaling, so type 1 interferon, and to a lesser extent, type 2 interferon. These actually upregulate ACE2 expression in the upper airway 
epithelial cells and primary bronchial cells. So since SARS-CoV-2 binds to the ACE2 receptor on cells to initiate infection, baricitinib's antagonism of interferon signaling could in turn lead to ACE2 receptor downregulation and interfere with the ability of SARS-CoV-2 to infect neighboring cells. Um, the tricky thing is, though, that ACE2 is also a counter-regulatory to the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and has a protective effect against RAS-related acute lung injury. And we now know that one of SARS-CoV-2's key virulence factors is its ability to downregulate ACE2 expression after cell entry, thereby thwarting ACE2 lung protective effects. So it's conceivable then that baricitinib could amplify ACE2 downregulation and, and further diminish its protective effects. Right now, there's just a lot of unknowns about really the net effects of this drug. Wow, Sarah, that's amazing. I have another question for you related to baricitinib. A lot of patients that are at their highest risk for complications of mortality are already immunosuppressed. Is there a risk for the use of this agent uh, or agents like this in treatment of acute viral infections? Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge concern with using JAK inhibitors and other immunomodulators in this setting in general. Um, we know from studies in rheumatoid arthritis patients that there's a small but significant increase in the risk of viral infections, particularly herpes zoster reactivation. Um, in all of these studies, though, patients with acute infections at baseline were excluded, so we're really kind of in the dark when it comes to infection risk in COVID-19 patients. Also, the data that we have for um, rheumatoid arthritis patients is for long-term chronic therapy. We hope that shorter courses used in COVID might be less risky, but we just don't know yet. Hey, Chris, let me take a few questions from you. Based on the pharmacokinetics, it appears that orally administered baricitinib has fairly decent bioavailability, about 80%. It's about 50% protein bound and has a half-life that ranges from six to nine hours, although it could be up to as high as 20 hours. Do pharmacokinetic studies support a linear dose relationship with this drug? And how is this drug eliminated? For sure. Uh, PK studies support linear kinetics with oral doses anywhere between 1 and 20 milligrams, and there's also minimal accumulation for up to 28 days. Uh, as for elimination, baricitinib is primarily renally cleared. As you mentioned, the half-life is 6 to 9 hours in healthy patients, but it may increase to 19 hours in patients with severe renal impairment or end-stage renal disease. Chris, any PK data in special patient populations, such as pediatric patients, obesity, or pregnancy? Yeah, there's some PK data for pediatric patients, but there still needs to be more research for the pharmacokinetics of baricitinib in obese and pregnant patients. In the study which looked at the pharmacokinetics of baricitinib in pediatric patients, the authors found the half-life of baricitinib was much shorter in children, especially those weighing less than 40 kilograms. So based on this information, baricitinib may be dosed two to four times daily in children, depending on renal function, whereas it's regularly dosed once daily in healthy and adult patients. Chris, what about any drug-drug interactions? Is there anything we should be concerned about? 
Uh, so baricitinib is a substrate of several drug transporters, including P-glycoprotein, BCRP, MATE2K, and O3. So a dose reduction is recommended in any patients taking strong O3 inhibitors, such as probenicid. Um, but otherwise, um, there's not too much research about uh, whether there's any interactions with BCRP or MATE2K inhibitors. And cyclosporin, a P-glycoprotein inhibitor, was not shown to clinically impact baricitinib PK. So really just the O3 inhibitors that we have to worry about at this time. Thanks, Chris. Sarah, let me get back to you again. We are always interested in the clinical data. Can you walk us through some of the clinical data experience with this agent for COVID-19? Yeah, so um, I'm aware of two small comparative cohort studies, uh, two case series plus um, several individual case reports that have been published to date. There was only one small clinical study when we wrote up this article, so it tells you how fast things are moving and, and how much hope people are kind of pinning on this drug. The study that we discuss in the article was a small Italian study, had a before-after design and included patients with moderate COVID-19, so basically hospitalized but not in the ICU. In total, there were 24 patients. Those in the before group were treated um, with off-label leponavir, ritonavir, plus hydroxychloroquine. And those in the after group got lapinavir, ritonavir plus baricitinib, dosed at four milligrams a day, all, up, all for up to 14 days. The patients that got baricitinib did really well. At two weeks, most clinical and laboratory parameters had normalized. No patients required ICU admission and over half were discharged home. The patients in the before group didn't do so great, really no significant improvement in clinical and laboratory parameters four required ICU admission, and, and only one went home by week two. No real concerning safety signals, including no bacterial or viral infections in the baricitinib-treated patients. Um, so this looks great on the surface, but it's just really hard to draw any firm conclusions. The use of historical controls is really fraught with problems in normal circumstances, and I think this is really amplified in the middle of a pandemic when knowledge is evolving so rapidly. The safety data was perhaps reassuring, but such a small study and it wasn't exactly clear if antibiotics were given to any patients empirically or prophylactically. The other study that I wanted to um, briefly touch upon was a case series of 15 patients with moderate to severe COVID-19 admitted to the Atlantic VA Medical Center this was recently published in uh, Clinical Infectious Diseases. So baricitinib was used at two and four milligram doses. And like the other study, patients also received other off-label drugs, mostly hydroxychloroquine. So these were much sicker patients. 60% were admitted to the ICU and over a quarter were mechanically ventilated. There was no control route, control group, so it's really hard to say anything about effectiveness. 80% survived to the end of follow-up, um, but two patients had thrombotic events, which I'll talk more about, and there was a case of bacterial pneumonia, C. diff, and candidemia. So using these drugs off-label with so many unknowns, especially with regards to safety, is, is kind of risky. The data that I think we're all really holding our breath for is um, from the second iteration of the ACTT 
study. So in the first phase of this study, patients were randomized to remdesivir or placebo, and they found remdesivir accelerated the time to recovery by about four days. Moving forward, everyone gets remdesivir, and then they're further randomized to baricitinib, four milligrams daily or placebo for up to 14 days. Um, in addition to this study, baricitinib is also being tested in a number of other clinical studies globally, including one here in Canada by the folks at uh, Dalhousie University and the Nova Scotia Health Authority. Sarah, you mentioned safety data a couple of times. What are the most common side effects and is there anything we really need to worry about with this drug? Yeah, so we touched upon the viral infections before related to its immunosuppressive properties, and, and Chris is going to talk a little bit more about other opportunistic infections. The fact that we don't have a reliable way to gauge the immune status of COVID-19 patients makes using immunosuppressive drugs like baricitinib really, um, really kind of tricky. We know that in sepsis, for example, there's a complicated interplay between pro-inflammatory response and related immunoparalysis. Um, if baricitinib is given to the wrong patient, so like a patient that has a predominantly immunosuppressed phenotype, or at the wrong time during the illness, these drugs could cause harm by inhibiting the cytokines required for viral clearance or immune restoration. On the other hand, they could help prevent organ damage related to hyperinflammation. So I feel like timing could be really important, but designing a study to, to explore this more would be really difficult. The other adverse effect that I wanted to highlight was the thrombotic risk. So in the rheumatoid arthritis clinical trials, there was an increased risk of both arterial and thrombotic events in the baricitinib arms, and this seemed to be dose-related. Um, although the overall number of events was low, this was one of the primary reasons that baricitinib wasn't approved when it first underwent evaluation by the FDA in 2017. So it did get approved a year later, but only at the two milligram dose. I guess this really concerns me because we know that COVID-19 patients seem to be in a hypercoagulable state already. And this hypercoagulation seems to be driven by inflammation so I guess it's possible that baricitinib could be protective in this setting, but we really don't know. And I'll certainly be interested to see how this plays out in the clinical trials. Hey, Chris, since this drug can modulate the immune system, can you talk more about the other opportunistic infections that have occurred in patients treated with baricitinib or related agents? What I'm referring to is the opportunistic infections besides the viral infections that Sarah has already previously mentioned. For sure. So since baricitinib inhibits multiple JAK proteins like we talked about earlier, it also blocks signaling from mediators of immune restoration, which can make patients more vulnerable to these opportunistic infections. Um, there were some studies that showed in rheumatoid arthritis patients taking baricitinib there were case reports of opportunistic infections which included esophageal candidiasis, PCP, and wound infection with coccidioides species. However, the majority of these reported infections happened when baricitinib was administered for longer than 16 weeks, and in ongoing COVID-19 studies, baricitinib is typically given for anywhere from 7 to 14 days. Hey Chris, I don't think we actually mentioned this, but how is baricitinib actually administered? Yeah, so um, in rheumatoid arthritis, which is where it's currently 
um, being used clinically. Baricitinib is taken once daily by mouth with or without food. And in Canada and the U.S., 2 milligram daily is the approved dose, but both 2 milligram and 4 milligram daily doses are being tested in clinical trials for COVID-19. Uh, according to the European Medicines Agency, dose reduction may be warranted in patients over the over 75 years of age, uh, if they have a history of chronic or recurrent infections, any patients with renal impairment, and or concomitant use of a strong OAT3 inhibitor. Thanks, Chris. Hey, Sarah, I'm going to go back to you and ask you, based on the review of the literature and the knowledge of this agent that you have, and also our discussions today, how do you see this drug being employed for the treatment of COVID-19 patients? First line or more likely for patients meeting specific criteria? Yeah, so my hunch is that it's going to be most helpful in patients that are severely ill and looking like an over-exuberant immune response is contributing to the complications. But on the other hand, these might be the patients most susceptible to superinfections and thrombosis, which baricitinib could exacerbate. I think ideally this would be paired with biomarkers that reliably measure a patient's immune status. Ultimately, I hope that the ongoing trials will shed more light on this. Um, another consideration is how it compares with dexmethasone. Um, using the two together could be really risky. And, and also for resource limiting settings, this drug is pretty pricey, so it, it might be out of reach, um, out of reach there. Sarah, Chris, a great discussion today on baricinitinib. I want to thank both of you for your time and effort and for writing the review on this agent for pharmacotherapy. Thanks. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for having us, Mike.